Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! In this episode, we will discuss Ernesto Miranda's case. We hope to answer the following questions. What was your first job? Are your rights important? And is evidence important for conviction? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up on an episode unless you're a guest. Hey guys, welcome back. This is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. Hey Kat, how's it going? Oh, it's going. How about with you? It's going good. It's going good. Nothing too crazy. Nothing out of the normal from training, but same old, same old. Just chugging along. Yeah, one day at a time. I hear ya. How about you? Everything's still the same? Everything's good? Yep, everything's the same. Nothing new or ex- nope, no new, exciting or crazy. Good. That's exciting, right? It's nothing too exciting. (laughs) That's right. Just keeping my head down one day at a time. It's better that way. Exactly. Well, are you excited about today's case? I am. This is uh, definitely something that affects everybody. Yeah. Around the world too, apparently. Yeah. But this is, this one is extremely important. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited too. Something um, we should all be aware of and they should teach this more often in school because I found out that a lot of people, believe it or not, don't know their rights. No, they don't. Or they take them for granted or they think they know. They think they know until it's too late. Then bad things can happen. Yeah. Well, before we get going into our case, let's remind everybody of last week's question. And I'll remind everybody. So the question was, where can you see Ted Bundy's Volkswagen Beetle? And the bonus question was, what color was the beetle? Ooh. <laughs> so I'll have you, Miss Cat, to share. Yeah, okay. Well, wow. Uh, Ted Bundy's 1968 VW Beetle is on display at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. While Bundy was on death row, former Salt Lake City Sheriff's Deputy Lonnie Anderson, not the actress, Purchased his 1968 VW, paying a mere $925 for the car at a police auction. He stashed it in a storage yard for nearly 20 years. In 1997, with most of its interior still missing from the forensic investigation, he attempted to sell it, asking $25,000 for the VW in a New York Times classified ad. Then in 2021, it was purchased by Arthur Nash, a known crime memorabilia collector. So what color was the beetle? Tan. So one of the crazy things that I found was the fun fact about this museum, because I'm like, Alcatraz, isn't that in San Francisco? Why is it in Tennessee, right? But I went to their website and found out that they also have O.J. Simpson's Ford Bronco. Oh, wow. Snap. Now I'm like, I feel like I need to go to this museum and check it out. Yes, Tennessee. Not only do they have the original double-decker moon pie, oh, the one with the moon on it, don't accept a substitute. It's the only moon pie that's double-decker. They also have a tow truck museum, which I thought was pretty interesting. And now apparently we've got the... Alcatraz East Crime. Alcatraz East. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I, I bet they got all kinds of cool stuff in there. It seemed like they had a lot of really cool things, at least from the website. I was like, okay. And the tickets are only $25. So it's not too bad. And it's free for children. Oh, yeah. Considering it's it's uh, probably a private little museum, not a bad thing. And uh, I found out that Arthur Nash still owns the uh, Beetle, by the way. He's never sold it. He just has the museum. Uh, is allowed to use it for show, show and tell. <laughs> On display. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's give a little quick recap of the case that we're going to be talking about today, and um, let's go from there. So on June 13th, 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision to establish the principle that all criminal suspects must be advised of their rights before interrogation. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you. So we're going to be talking about Mr. Ernesto Miranda. I almost chopped that up, but I was like, I'm going to excuse myself. I am not a cop. I'm not a detective. (laughs) (laughs) I know what my right is, but I don't know the full like paragraph because it's, it's changed like in movies and shows, like they'll add certain things and they take out certain things. But I think the most principle of the whole rights that have to be given is the, you have the right to remain silent and then you're allowed to have an attorney present. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get into that a little bit later on the show and I've got the full, the full rights. Awesome. That is great. That way, that way everybody will know what their little rights are (laughs) and don't be afraid to use them. Absolutely. Use them. And, uh, you know, you hear a lot of people always say, oh, I plead the fifth. You know, this kind of helps people to understand that because they, you hear people make those comments in movies and especially if you're a true kind follower, but do you even know what you're really saying? Really scary to think about because we make these common, we just speak without really realizing what we're saying. Exactly. So today we'll talk a little bit about his background. Uh, the crime that led to this, and then the trial and what led after that. Yeah, so little Ernesto, uh, he was a very busy little boy. <laughs> he sure was. He sure <laughs> I would always heard that, you know, this was, case was based on him because he didn't get his rights and blah, blah. And I thought, oh, and I started reading. I'm like, this young man has had a little bit of life of crime. Yeah, he was a busy, busy boy for sure. I found some, some very interesting facts about his background. I didn't expect to find as much as I did, especially because this is, he was born Ernesto Arturo Miranda in Mesa, Arizona on March 9th, 1941. So here we go again, like an older case. He was born in Arizona. 1941, Arizona. And I didn't think to find too much details about him, but I did find quite a bit about his early life and a little bit of his background. And when he was younger, he went by Ernie, but as an adult, he ended up going by Ernest. I thought that was a very interesting, fun fact about him. But he was the fifth son to Manuel A. Miranda. He was a house painter who immigrated to the U.S. from Sonora, Mexico as a child. Ernie's mom, or should I say Ernesto's mom, she died when uh, Ernesto was five years old and his father remarried the following year. But he never developed a relationship with his stepmom and he pretty much drifted apart from his you know, dad and, and brother. So I couldn't find any details outside of that about his family. Yeah, me either. It just seemed like his mom died and that was just the start of the end, so to speak. He must have been a mama's boy or something. Maybe, but I guess he just never really bonded with his dad. So I don't know if it's because his, his dad being a house painter, if it took him away mm-hmm. a lot and he just wasn't around a lot, or maybe they just didn't communicate well. I mean, it's a big family. He had, you know, 
he was the fifth son, so he had four older brothers. Big family in the house. I guess, you know, he really started getting into trouble in grade school. He, his first, like, criminal conviction that he got in trouble with, because he had quite a background, was during his eighth grade year at Queen of Peace Grammar School. He stole a car, and he was sentenced to a reform school. So, I'm like an eighth grader stealing a car back in the 1990s. He was eighth grade. Probably like late fifties, early sixties. Wow, that's that's a tall that's a tall order. What happened to you know petty theft first? He just got in and stole the car. So yeah, and he went to reform school, and it was the Arizona State Industrial School for Boys. That doesn't even sound like a fun name. No, that sounds like. I bet it was a bunch of hard work. Yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of feels like it was like a military style school or something yeah or just really hard labor mm-hmm. like we're just gonna work this out of you but he went there twice mm-hmm. so i'm thinking man i think after the first time that would have been enough for me but i'm a girl <laughs> so i don't know but that was like two times too many for me yeah and after the second time he decided to relocate to la of all places like okay bro you got into a lot of trouble <laughs> going to la sure okay oh yeah that'll fix it <laughs> And it wasn't even within months that he arrived to L.A. that he was arrested. He was never convicted, but he was arrested on suspicion of armed robbery and for some sex offenses. Yeah, so I guess he sat in the pokey for a little bit in California while they decided what they were going to do or not do with him. And I'm sure knowing California, they were very disappointed that they were not able to convict him mm-hmm. because, you know, California takes great pride in their whole system. After two and a half years of being in custody, even though they never really were able to convict him, he was extradited back to Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got back here and he just drifted and wound up going to Texas and then into Tennessee, where he again stole the car. So I found out that when he got back to, from Arizona that he actually joined the U.S. Army. Really? Yes. Yeah, so he joined the U.S. Army in April of 1958. So he was a little after 18 years old. And he ended up getting into trouble because he went AWOL and was caught in a peeping Tom charge. This earned him six months of hard labor in the military post in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And he was undesirably discharged in July of 1959 at the age of 19. Oh, that's where his peeping Tom came from. Yes. Okay, because I knew he was convicted of a sex crime. A peeper. A peeper peeper crime. So yeah, that's when he ended up... Drifting around the south of the U.S. for a few months and ended up in Texas. And then stole another car. But then, because he stole the car and crossed the state line, it's now federal. Mm-hmm. So he uh, was sentenced to a year and one day, and he went to federal prison for that. That was crazy. But man, I mean, he, he got around. I mean, he spent time in uh, Chillicothe. He spent time in Ohio, Lampoc, California. California. We know he did time in Arizona. It was a lot. And I'm not sure where he did his federal time. Uh, it was uh, He was arrested in Nashville, Tennessee. I see. Oof. Then right after all his like hard time, I guess you could say, he ended up meeting his wife soon after, uh, Twilla Hoffman. It's a very interesting name. I just want to make a reference. Twilla. Twilla Hoffman. <laughs> That's not a common name you hear nowadays. So I just, maybe in the South you do, but not... Not on the West Coast. Yeah, no, that's not a not a common normal name for us. And then he struggled to hold down a job at first, but then he ended up settling down and he tried to become a model employee, um, like, you know, trying to provide for his family. So 
look, it sounds like Hoffman had two kids prior to meeting him. So she had a little boy and a little girl. And then when they got together, they ended up having a daughter and they named her Cleopatra. Oh my God. Cleopatra Miranda. Mm -hmm. I did some Googling trying looking for this Cleopatra Miranda. There's only one person in all of Facebook and like Instagram and she lives in New York City. Wow. I don't know if it's her. She looks like him, but I don't know if it's her or not. So then that's pretty much like his life. He was, you know, kind of settled in living with his new lady and having a baby. And so he was kind of like living his life. Yeah. He was working um, on the night loading dock for a Phoenix produce company. Mm-hmm. So yeah, apparently when the two of them had met, you know, there was enough there that he decided to settle down and really try to make a go of it. He tried. And it sounds like he was doing really well. It sounds like he was doing good. Like he didn't really have any issues until one beautiful March 3rd day. <laughs> 1963. On March 3rd, 1963, while returning home from her late night job as a theater in Phoenix, Arizona, 18-year-old Lois Ann Jameson was attacked. So this was kind of like the turning point for... Okay, there's a crime that happened. She stated that the assailant forced her into a car while threatening her with a knife, drove to the Arizona desert, sexually assaulted her, took her money, and dropped her off a few blocks from her home. Later, she described the attacker and his vehicle to detectives. So nobody had been charged. I don't know exactly who this person is, but the following week, her brother stated that he saw the car he believed to have been used in the attack and recorded the license plate number. He stated it was the age green car in the driveway of Twilla Hoffman's house, which was further investigated and found to be a match of James's description of the crime. Ernesto Miranda shared this home with Hoffman, his common-law wife, and Ernesto, at the age of 22, was then accused and arrested by Officer Carol Cooley for the kidnapping and rape of Lois Ann Jameson. Yeah, and I, you know, there's just not enough there for me to to see how they drew this this connection where's the evidence you know the only the only really thing they ever had to go on was Lois Ann Jameson claimed that she was abducted by a bespeckled Mexican man all right a guy with glasses how many of those people could that be well you're in Arizona this used to be exactly Mexico <laughs> oh, exactly exactly <laughs> More tan than white. Really? Wow. And then where was the brother to see this car? Was he picking her up when she got off of work at the movie theater? I mean, how does he even enter into this? Yeah, it's very just broad and there's no real evidence to why he ended up getting uh, accused and arrested with no evidence. Yeah. And then, you know, to make matters worse, so they, you know, go into the house, arrest him in front of his family you know, take him out, take him downtown. They put him in a lineup. She, as in Miss Jameson, is unable to pull him out of a lineup. Mm -hmm. She can't ID him in a lineup. So the cops going on gut instinct and, you know, intuition and all that good stuff that they did in the day, they decide, okay, we know we've got our man. She didn't identify him in the lineup. So here's what we'll do. So we'll go back into the interrogation room and tell Miranda Guess what? She picked you out of a lineup, dude. Mm -hmm. And so Miranda's probably like, huh, what? What do you mean she picked me out of a lineup? Like, I I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I'm sure that was what was going through his mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So now, for me, it gets scary because two two detectives are in this interrogation room alone with Miranda 
for two hours. They've already lied to him that he's been picked out, picked out in a lineup. And I'm sorry, this is, you know, a little back in the day. Who knows what they said or did to him? Or the way they twisted his words. Like he could have exactly. said one thing and went off of like, oh, but you just said that you were doing this. So which one was it? And, you know, they twist things left and right. Exactly. And it was two on one. And I'm not sure what his education level was. And I just, you know, police just had a way. And boy, when they zeroed in on a subject back in the day, that was it. And so two hours with these two in a room and they come out with a signed confession. Mm-hmm. Does that bother anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find that a little hard to believe. And my little mind goes way back to a case we did earlier, Ms. Deborah Milkey, where she wasn't read her rights and she was in a room with, you know, Sergeant Saldana, et cetera, et cetera. And he was nothing nice and he twisted stuff and look what happened to her. Exactly. You know, right away I'm like, Wait a minute, what's going on? This is suspicious. Yeah, very suspicious. So then on uh, March 14th, after all that goes down, Miranda was taken before a city magistrate and charged with failure to register as an ex-convict. And I'm like, okay, what is going on here? So then he was sentenced for 10 days and transferred to the county jail. Uh, the, the police time that to hold him was to, uh, the, they allowed police time to hold him while investigating the, the more serious charges. I was like, what is going on here? And then, and then, if this isn't enough, come to find out statements that he supposedly confessed to in his very brief confession did not match to what Lois Ann said happened. That should have been a like, hello, red light, something's different here. Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, Well, nice try, dude. You didn't get any of the details really correct. Thanks for playing. Have a nice day. Oh, no. They're just convinced they got their man. So it doesn't matter that things didn't match. We've got a guy here, and we got him to confess. Mm-hmm. And they had that form already that he signed, so. Right, and we're going home for dinner. Pretty much. Too bad, too bad, too sad. And for people that think that that cannot happen to you, you could not be more wrong. Oh, yeah. We have a case that I shared with you not too long ago that happened in Arizona where the detectives were interrogating this guy and they kept saying, you're the one that killed your girlfriend. And come to find out this guy was like practically dying in interrogation and they didn't realize he had like an embolism or something going on. That is crazy. Yeah, that's that's another nice one we need to do. Uh, It's crazy. Here it goes. He's convicted of robbery on June 19th, 1963. And the following day, his trial began for kidnapping and rape charges. So he's convicted of robbery. And then the following day, his trial began for kidnapping and rape charges. Yeah. So here the kid comes into court and he's got a court appointed attorney. And it was at the time he was 73 years old, 73 year old Alvin Moore. Mm hmm. And so he tried to argue to have the confession thrown out. The police even admitted that they didn't give him Miranda. They're like, like, what do we need to give him Miranda for? Of course we didn't bother with that. And the judge was not having it. Yeah, and he got admitted into evidence and the jury deliberated for literally five hours before returning to a guilty verdict on June 27th. And uh, Moore called no witnesses. Oh yeah, that was like a red flag. But I don't even think, who was he going to call? I mean, at least they could have asked him, like, okay, what were you doing on this day at this time? And do you have anybody to st- sit here and say, hey, I was with them? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Moore just gave up and figured when they had the confession, 
That was it. You know, his client was toast. What was he going to do? They heard the confession. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what he was supposed to do at that point in time. I mean, I don't even think there was really any precedence for him to say, ah, but your honor, they did not. They admitted they didn't. And he still got convicted. So I, I don't know, would need to, uh, find an attorney to have as a guest on our show. Cause I just, I cannot answer that question as to, you know, why he didn't do anything. It's funny. Cause the uh, prosecution did have the four people that to testify against him. It was the girl, her sister, and then Officer Carol Cooley and Detective Alfred Young. So those four people, those were the two detectives and the officer, I guess, that were doing the interrogation, got asked to testify against Miranda. Okay, so now I go, who's her sister and what does she have to do with it? Yeah. At all. And if the brother's the one that identified the stupid license plate, where was he and how come he didn't testify? Yeah, I wanted to mention that because that's like, again, another suspicion. <laughs> Suspicious. Is anybody crying crying foul yet? I mean, yeah, there should be a bag of feathers in here because this is ridiculous. It's scary, actually, really scary. Yeah. And then, uh, so on June 27th, 1963, he was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in state prison. Yeah, and we know that is not fun. Uh, yeah. And he ended up going to Arizona State Prison in Florence. He did, and that is such not a nice place, people. Prison's not a nice place, but Florence is really not. It's a very, part of it is just very, very, very old. And it's, oof, it's just creepy looking. Oh, yeah. I have to mention, uh, not really a confession or anything, but Peter and I, over the weekend, we went out to Buckeye to go visit a friend because they bought a house out in Buckeye. Uh Uh-huh. And we drove by Perryville, right? And so Uh he's like, on the way back, let's go drive through. I want you to show me all the buildings and stuff. And he's like, (laughs) all fascinated by it, right? And I go, okay, we'll drive back. But by the time we left my friend's house, it was so dark. I was like, we are not driving by the prison. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they were all locked down by then. It was dark. That yeah. was like the best time to drive by. I was telling my friend, I was like, did they make you sign anything that like to make you aware that there's a prison? He's like, it's on the other side of the freeway. I don't care. And I was like, okay, I'm just letting you know. I think that should have been noted. That should have been noted in your something that you when you signed the new home or something. I would assume exactly because this is this is a sidebar, but they did have uh, an escape. Yeah, In- inmate Acker did escape and hitchhiked down I ten and made it over to ASU. So it is possible to have someone escape. That's what I told him. I was like. I just thought that was very interesting that he didn't sign anything and he was buying a brand new home in. Actually, it was like Goodyear. So it wasn't actually, it's like right at the border of Goodyear and Buckeye. But literally on the other side of the freeway is the prison. So I just thought that was odd that he didn't have to sign anything or be made aware of it. Yeah. And I, I'm going to guess the houses that built up all around Lewis don't. There, there are houses just in the, the little tiny, itty, they're, they're small foothills. But, mm-hmm. you know. For for Phoenix, when you get a couple hundred feet, ooh, look at the view. But there's some houses out there, boy. You're out there flipping burgers, and you're watching the little orange birds going back and forth in the yard. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, no, I'm not paying for that view. Thank you very much. Exactly. So back to our case. (laughs) So here's poor Ernesto sitting in Florence, not having a good time. So um, the ACLU kind of heard about it and sort of came together and uh, started rallying. 
And they went to the Arizona Supreme Court, which, of course, affirmed the decision and held that his rights were not violated because he did not specifically request counsel. And when we explain Miranda and get into it a little more, this is going to make more sense what what the difference is on this. But the Supreme, the state Supreme Court was like, yeah, no, nothing to see here. Move on. So the ACLU got involved and it's a good thing they did. And I, this was part of the early, early formations of such things to come as like the Innocence Project and that where they start looking at wrongful convictions and things. So they uh, actually got together and wrote an insane like 2,500 word opinion about why they felt that his rights were violated. And the Supreme Court agreed to see the case. Mm -hmm. So that is just really impressive. And what we're talking about as far as the the Fifth Amendment, uh, the Fifth Amendment requires that law enforcement officials advise suspects of their rights to remain silent and to obtain a jury, a jury, an attorney during questioning. Okay, the Fifth Amendment requires that law enforcement officials advise suspects of their rights to remain silent and to obtain an attorney during questioning while in police custody. There's much more to it, but that's like the one that everybody knows Mm -hmm. and does. But the Supreme Court decided to take this case and they sat on, well, I don't want to say sat on it, but they they worked on it and debated it for several months. Mm Mm-hmm. They had this case about six or seven months, and they were kind of going back and forth. And this was the time of the Warren Court, and it was a 5-4 decision, and I thought it was greater than that, but it barely passed. It was a 5-4 decision, and it overturned his conviction. So members on the Supreme Court that voted yes on this decision was Justice Warren, Black, Douglas, Brennan, and Fortas, but on the no side was Justice Clark, Harlan, Stewart, and White. And Justice Clark wrote in his paper, his opinion, that he felt that the majority's opinion created unnecessary strict interpretation of the Fifth Amendment that curtails the ability of police to effectively execute their duties. The state should have burden of proof that the suspect was aware of his rights during interrogation, but that statements resulting from interrogation should not be automatically excluded if the suspect was not explicitly informed of their rights. So he just felt that by this passing, it was like tying the hands of the police officers. And I have to disagree with that, but Mm -hmm. that's what they were feeling at the time, that this just pulled the rug out from police if they had to keep stopping and and advising people of their rights. And then Justice Wright wrote, the Fifth Amendment only protects defendants from giving self-incriminating testimony if explicitly compelled to do so. And he's talking about like uh, testifying in a trial that you you have the right not to say something that would incriminate you. And um, he argued that custodial interrogation was not inherently coercive. (laughs) <laughs> I disagree with that. And that uh, did not require such a broad interpretation of the protections of the Fifth Amendment. And such an interpretation harms the criminal process by destroying the credibility of confessions. So they were extremely worried about it. And it's funny because in later years, even President Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. really had a hard time with this decision and kind of thought that it tied law enforcement's hands. I personally think it gives a wonderful balance. Yeah, it gives, like, there's not too much power on the law enforcement's hand. And at the same time, it protects you. Because what if you 
say English is not your primary language and you think one word means something that it doesn't actually mean and you actually just incriminated yourself. Exactly. I mean, anything can happen. Anything can happen. You can be nervous. I mean, being around cops, if you've never been around cops and you're in a room by yourself, you're getting interrogated. One of the things that makes you immediately think is you get nervous and you start speaking before thinking. So it's very easy for you to incriminate yourself. But one of the things I want to mention about Chief Justice Earl Warren that was, because I have to make this comment because, you know, I have this confession about my sweet love, JFK. I know. (laughs) I knew it was coming. (laughs) I have this thing for JFK. JFK alert. Yeah, definitely. He, um, I just want to mention a little background on Earl Warren just because he was the chief. He graduated on the University of California in 1912. And it was like, okay, Arizona just became a state. (laughs) So did New Mexico. And received his law degree two years later. He practiced law in San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, He started his life in a public service when he became deputy city attorney at Oakland. And then he was elected attorney general of California in 1938 before serving three terms as a state governing Governor, beginning in 1942, President Eisenhower nominated Earl as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1953, a position he held until his retirement in 1969. Warren chaired many notable cases during his tenure, including the commission investigation of the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Oh, wow. So I just thought that was pretty interesting that he was a part of that case as well, just because I like JFK. I know. You love JFK. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because my, my best friend, she's obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. And so we always say that that's why we have this like connection is because I'm obsessed with JFK and she's obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. There you go. All right. Wow. This looks like a good spot to, to pause. Yes. We'll leave everybody um, on to the next episode. But before we kind of close it into a wrap, uh, I really motivate you to really know your rights as a citizen, especially in the U.S. Any country that, you know, a lot of our listeners are from overseas, but really know your rights because it can be violated anytime. And if you don't know your rights, you don't know how to protect yourself and how to fight back. Exactly. Exactly. A little knowledge goes a long way. Absolutely. But before we go, I have the question of the week. (laughs) Did you pick us a good one? I did. So... What killer was caught because he left a bloody footprint on his victim? Ooh. All right. As always, please feel free to go to the website or go to our Facebook page. Put in your guesses. Yes. Your best sleuthing, your hunches. So we look forward to your interaction. Yes. And make sure to share our podcast with all your friends and family, people that love true crime. You never know who may. That's right. Even your colleagues. You never know. You'd be surprised. (laughs) Exactly. You know, we're free to listen to. So it just takes a little time. Well, for next week's episode, we'll do the continuation of Ernesto Miranda's case. Until then, you guys take care, be kind, and stay safe. All right. Everybody be careful out there. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye-bye.
Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime One or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Ninth for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Ninth for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.